Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books in European Studies podcast. I'm your host, Tal Zemanovich. Joining us online from Chicago is Deborah Cohen, Peter B. Risma Professor of the Humanities and Professor of History at Northwestern University. Her new book, Family Secrets, Shame and Privacy in Modern Britain, was published in 2013 by Oxford University Press. It was voted Book of the Year by several publications such as the Sunday Times and the Times Literary Supplement. The book Citrus Secrets is a category in flux. It traces the role of families in the transformation of social norms from the Victorian era to the present day. Families are portrayed as active historical agents whose struggles to conceal and live with shameful details often soften social stigma such as that attached to illegitimacy, adultery or homosexuality. Cohen records how secrecy was transformed from a pervasive practice to its rejection as harmful. Cohen demonstrates insightfully how while secrecy was derided, privacy became entangled with personal freedom and public confession is now championed as an avenue to greater happiness. The labor of the historian often includes revealing secrets and writing their history. It is less common, however, to trace the history of the emotions that surround these secrets as Cohen does so well. Hi, Deborah. Thank you for joining us today. Hi, Tal. Thanks so much for having me. Um, I wonder if you'd begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and your work. Sure. I um, was born in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, and my first book, I was a graduate student at Berkeley. And my first book was about disabled veterans after the First World War in Britain and Germany. Um, and my second book Again, my work has been kind of far-flung. Anyway, so my second book was about the British love affair with their possessions from the late 18th century to essentially the time of the Second World War. And then the book I've just finished is about family secrets. I think that what unites these books conceptually is really two things. Um, First, an interest in the relationship between the individual and society. Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, the a kind of prevailing interest in causality and how do you make causal explanations um, you know, in different kinds of registers. So, for instance, in the first book, because it was a comparative book, a national comparative book, I was interested in what I think about now as a a very um, social scientific way of constructing a comparison. What is the decisive factor? What factors are shared? Um, And this, in Family Secrets, what I've been trying to do is to think about um, comparison as a more kind of um, suggestive and circumstantial ways of constructing comparative explanations. So those are the kinds of themes that have united the books. Okay, well, I mean, we'll unpack some of these themes as we go along, but I wonder if um, you can tell us a bit about um, this book and how you um, how you got working on it. Okay. Mm-hmm. So this book, I so I had both. I think a set of familial, <laughs> appropriately enough, a set of familial interests and then also a set of historical interests. So I, in the two kind of dominant families of my childhood, um, which was at my mother's, uh, at my maternal grandmother's level and at the level of my father's family, they both had lots of secrets and they were very different kinds of families and kept them very differently. Mm-hmm. So my mother's family was a big sprawling family um, at the grandmother's generation, nine siblings oh, wow. um, and a huge amount of um, secrets, but secrets that were articulated and, and constantly out, at least within the, the confines of the family. 
Whereas my father's family was the classic interwar family of two parents, two children, very inward looking, and their secrets were kept very tightly. Um, so much so that actually some of them I didn't know until my father had died. So on the familial level, there was that. So comparative interest in, you know, how are secrets kept and how are these, if secrets are always about talking, as Louise White says, um, what are these, how would these different ways of proceeding um, function vis-a-vis the kind of larger social worlds of these families? Mm -hmm. And then in terms of scholarship, what I was interested in was that while we had good accounts of social movements um, and kind of what I would say highly stigmatized minorities. Um, so really an excellent scholarship about all the, of those kinds of different subjects. And while we had a really um, you know venerable history of the family, that there was nothing that took both the history of the family and kind of social movements to ask, well, how does social change happen? How does social transformation happen, especially vis-a-vis the role of the family? And that was my particular interest. Actually, um, although your title refers us to shame and privacy, and I, I want us to talk about that a bit later, but since you mentioned kind of the, the connection between family and social change, um, I found that I, the family and its changing nature, um, and even the as an institution and as an experience, is actually one of the kind of main strands of your book. Do you agree? Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, that's really an absolutely fundamental argument to the book. Um, so I argue that families, that while we have a kind of history of big social transformation that points us to public events like protest movements and parliamentary inquiries and new laws, that there's also a history of sea changes that happen behind closed doors. Um, and what I'm arguing in the book is that that happens not because families are enlightened or want to kind of shield their members um, out of the goodness of their own hearts, but rather that it was in the family that people first confront um, stigmas and uh, kind of wicked behaviors <laughs> that they hadn't c contemplated. And that, you know, families in those cases could be repressive, they could be accepting, but most of all, what they wanted to do was keep the entire shame private. Mm -hmm. So that's, a, in a way, a kind of first step. And that what you see from there is that they, having kept this, um, you know, criminal behavior in some cases private or kept it secret, that it, that, that sort of necessity shades into justification. And the idea becomes that your son's queerness or your daughter's illegitimacy, it isn't anyone else's business. So what I'm arguing then is that the family is a site for a sort of moral relativism about mm -hmm. behavior mm -hmm. and the ways in which people are coming to terms behind closed doors. You kind of also describe a different um, way that people view their family um, and that changes over time till we get to the kind of 1970s um, labeling of the family as a source of all evil and unhappiness. Um, Right, right. This is, I mean, so what the book is tracing out is a, some radical uh, changes in the ways in which people contemplate the family with mm -hmm. <laughs> capital T, capital F. Um, and it's doing that through looking at secrets. So where Victorians um, conceived of secrets as necessary, right, in some cases even as virtuous. Mm -hmm. Secrets were going to cement the bonds of family loyalty. We think about secrets as damaging. Mm -hmm. um, and the high point for thinking about the family is absolutely pervaded um, by secrecy is in the late 1960s and early 1970s when you registered this really fundamental change in the ways in which people are thinking about um, the activities of the family. And it's at that point I'm arguing, and this is where the kind of secrecy privacy argument that we'll talk about comes in, that even the family's kind of long held claims to its rights to privacy 
are challenged because yeah. the idea is that families are so oppressive to their members that they don't deserve privacy. So what we see over the course of the period that I'm talking about, so from the 19th century to the late 20th century, is a really fundamental change in the ways in which people think about families um, or the family, um, you know, capital T, capital F. And, you know, the, the kind of starting and ending points for me are um, the Victorian family, um, where people tend to think about secret, not just secrets, not just as necessary, but even as virtuous um, as things that cement the bonds of family unity and demonstrate family loyalty. So that's a kind of start point. And then the end point is the um, late 1960s and early 1970s, where the part of the, the, um, uh, really negative appraisal of the family has to do with the ways in which it's implicated in secret keeping. So the idea is that families are so saturated by secrets that they don't really even have what they've long claimed for themselves, which is a right to privacy mm-hmm. that families necessarily under the cloak of secrecy or privacy at this point in the early 1970s, they're essentially viewed as the same thing when it comes to families um, that they are constantly oppressing their members. And this indictment of the family is really a crucial part, not just of late 1960s political movements, but also of, you know, early 1970s liberationist movements um, like gay liberation and feminism. Mm -hmm. Um, You describe a cultural shift from the Victorian emphasis on secrecy to today's questioning of its value. So in addition, your narrative, um, in your narrative, sorry, uh, privacy morphs from a family practice into a right. Could you elaborate on these transformations? Yeah, absolutely. So this is really the kind of what I would say is the second big argument of the book, which is there's the argument of, about the family and social transformation. And then there's this argument. And, you know, it's essentially here's the chronology, which is that we, so we think about privacy and secrecy as being two completely different things. Um, Privacy is good, it's a legal right to be protected, and secrecy is damaging um, and should be avoided. But for the Victorians, um, secrecy and privacy are oftentimes used interchangeably. Sometimes they're uh, even defined as the very same sort. Uh, Secrecy, for the Victorians, I'm arguing, was actually the cornerstone of privacy. Privacy, for us, is the right not to have to keep secrets. Mm-hmm. And so if we're you know, trying to understand how that happened, um, I think we have to go back to our old conception of the Victorians as the most private people, as the people who cherish privacy, mm-hmm. to say privacy for the Victorians was much less secure than we imagine. And that really well into the 20th century, a huge range of sub- shameful subjects, illegitimacy, adultery, homosexuality, were all subject both to legal penalties, but also to public scorn if they were known. And this wasn't just a kind of theoretical question. There were real dangers. People worried about being blackmailed, especially in big cities. Mm-hmm. Um, there was the constant fear in middle-class households of servants who were the you know transmitters of secrets, um, at least as they thought. And then, of course, the formidable apparatus of moral regulation um, that the state musters, whether it's in, you know, uh, criminalization of acts of uh, homosexual acts between men and public or in private or the divorce court. Um, and so, so what I'm mapping out then in the book is the ways in which secrecy and privacy are essentially um, overlapping concepts with secrets for the Victorians as the cornerstone of privacy and how they come apart in the 20th century, accelerating especially from the 1930s to the 1970s. Um, And um, I thought one of the very interesting things you point out is how uh, keeping secrets is many many times dependent on uh, material um, circumstances. Could you elaborate a bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that I say, and you know, 
uh, somewhat jokingly in the book is that if keeping a servant was one way to define the middle class person, then the ability to keep a secret was another way to define the middle class person because secrets so often required um, you know, the luxury of houses where you wouldn't be overheard. So not overcrowded working class housing where everyone knew each other's business. Um, they required uh, the ability to enforce discretion to hire people like solicitors and doctors who were absolutely the keepers, of professional people's secrets. Um, and that conversely for the poor who you know, not only live in overcrowded conditions, but also are prey to a um, stream of social investigators and charitable ladies and and visiting nurses and those sorts of people. Everyone recognizes how difficult it is actually for them to keep secrets. And there's a classic case of that in the illegitimate child, right? Mm-hmm. Middle class people are able to conceal uh, an illegitimate child that has happened in their midst by sending the daughter away, for instance, to a mother and baby home and having the child adopted out. What happens much more frequently in working class neighborhoods is that the family takes care of the problem within itself so that the you know mother <clears throat> so that the grandmother um, poses as the mother or the aunt poses as the mother, and yet everyone on the street knows the child's parentage because it couldn't, the pregnancy couldn't really be concealed very easily from the life of the street. Does that result in more tolerance or not? It's such an interesting, yeah, it's such an interesting question because I think that, you know, if part of the story, the 19th century is about social mores being enforced from the top down, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and fights about social mores. Part of the story of the period from say the 1930s to the 1970s is surely about the ways in which social mores move from the bottom of society up so that something like the destigmatization of illegitimacy is, I think, underway in working class neighborhoods um, by the late 1930s. That's certainly what social investigators and social workers thought, which was, you know, by the late 1930s, they detect that a working class respectable father is willing to allow his daughter to remain home through a first pregnancy for through a first illegitimate pregnancy, not a second one, but a first one. Um, and that, you know, in the story that will, that we need to tell about why illegitimacy is destigmatized. I think that that sense of kind of social mores changing, um, from the unrespectables to the respectables, um, is surely a key part. That's really interesting. So while keeping secrets is in your narrative many times for the wealthy or at least, you know, um, the better off, it seems from, you know, the other end of your account that revealing secrets in our um, modern confessional culture um, can be done by all classes. So in some ways, this rise of the culture of um, confession can be seen in relation to the spread of democracy. Do you agree this Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I mean, I think that that is right. And I think that it's right in the sense that I would sketch out the lineage of confessional culture from the 1930s um, and map that onto the coming of democratization, Mm -hmm. proper democratization in Britain after the First World War, as well as the sort of rising tide of individualism over the course of the 20th century, which kind of plugs into the point about the late 60s and early 70s. Um, And yeah, absolutely. I think the starting point of all of that, um, just to pinpoint a starting point, is the 1930s with a boom in mass market Mm -hmm. confessions. When tabloids, especially the Daily Mirror, pioneer, you know, confessional contests, when you have Um, tell-all memoirs, that's more the upper crust. Um, From the 1940s, you have marriage counseling centers in every British town and city. And I think what's happening there is that individuals are asserting a right to talk about their secrets out loud Mm -hmm. um, while they are also vehemently defending their privacy. So that sense of... um, Democratization and what is the what are the rights of the subjects of a democratic society mm-hmm. that they have the right to actually art- to sort of enunciate shame um, 
but also to protect their private information from what they view as the encroachments of a, you know, ever uh, more intrusive state. So can you illustrate a bit how these two things work? I mean, how do they protect their right for privacy? And on the other hand, like uh, give examples of um, those contested. Right. So let's go into the Marriage Counseling Center. Mm -hmm. I think that's probably the best place to look. Sure, I'll follow. (laughs) Yeah, excellent. Um, Which is that when the first marriage guidance clinics open, um, and this is the essentially the movement begins after the Second World War, though the marriage guidance uh, first centers are founded uh, late in the 30s. And so what essentially happens is skeptics basically say, you know, this is <laughs> who is going to come in and talk about their problems to a complete stranger. And what the records from the marriage counseling center that I was able to uh, see the case files of that's in Edinburgh demonstrate is that all sorts of people from all walks mm-hmm. of life came into this and came into this marriage guidance center and talked about their problems. And they talked so much about them that, in a sense, these counselors were utterly unprepared to hear what they had to say and then to act on it. And in some cases, you have these great reports of counselors trying to kind of, you know, people have talked for like two hours straight and they lead them to the door and try to get rid of them because they, you know, have other people <laughs> who are piling up in the waiting room. But, um, and so, okay, so this is the then the point where people are constantly then talking about secrets and really shameful things Mm -hmm. to a stranger. But what's really interesting about these is that then the clients of marriage counseling clinics in this period, in the 40s and the 50s, come once, maybe twice, and never come again. Mm -hmm. And if the marriage counseling center tries to contact them at home, they are appalled (laughs) and furious that their privacy has been infringed upon has been and that that they didn't license that they wanted to be able to actually have a cathartic experience in the clinic but they didn't actually want to involve these marriage guidance people in their lives do you think that's also a process of learning of how to talk about secrets yeah i think that that is i think that that's right that people in a sense, what you see from the 1930s is this enormous convergence. So in the marriage counseling clinics, in the tabloids, um, in the divorce court, where increasingly from 1929, basically you have to um, confess to adultery uh, in order to be able to get a divorce. So whereas adultery had been an absolute bar to getting a divorce, in the interwar period, the calculus changes and the divorce court decides, okay, well, what people need to do is make a full and frank confession in order to get their divorce. So there's a kind of convergence in a number of different settings where people are um, kind of hazarding this chance to talk in various kinds of public settings from the intimate public kind of quasi-private setting of the marriage counseling clinic to the very public setting of the divorce court. Um, to the public but anonymized setting of the tabloid. So um, you kind of uh, describe this uh, process that, you know, um, entails more and more revealing and opening. Does Do we reach a point where families no longer have secret? Is your history kind of reached its end point? Mm, no, I think families still have secrets. Um and I certainly think individuals certain uh, have secrets. Families are you know, very, very differently constituted now than they were at the beginning of the period that I'm talking about. And the ways in which secrets are viewed are very different, right? So Victorians, by and large, feel that secrets are inevitable. We think that about secrets is damaging. Um, and that doesn't mean that we don't have them, but we feel much guiltier about them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I would say that this trajectory that I'm sketching out in the book is one in which um, privacy becomes, goes from being the right to hide to the right to tell. Mm-hmm. So where confessional culture is not the end of privacy, but in a sense, it's fullest expression, which is the right mm-hmm. to tell 
shameful things without consequence. Mm. Um, I want to go back to shame and to think about shame as an emotion and to ask you if you see your book as part of um, the field of the history of emotions. Yes, I absolutely do. Um, And I think, you know, it's taking up one of the central questions of the history of emotions, which is to, you know, to what extent are emotions universal and to what extent, in what cases are they, they particular? Mm-hmm. And so what I was interested in doing, this is one of the sort of sub-arguments of the book, is understanding how shame functions mm-hmm. uh, historically and why it changes over time. And one of the arguments I'm making, and I make this you know, most explicitly in the chapter about the institutionalization of disabled children um, and me- sort of generally attitudes towards mental disability more broadly, is that um, shame doesn't proceed only in one direction, that there isn't a kind of universal movement towards progressive enlightenment, declosing hallways, and that it can be circular as well as linear. So, for instance, in the case of disabled, of mental disability, the argument that I'm making, drawing on the records of the um, Normansfield Institution, which was founded by John Langton Down, for whom Down syndrome is named, um, is that Victorians, Victorian parents who sent their children to Normansfield, to Dr. John Langton Down's care, um, were not keeping these children hidden. They took them out to theaters and they took them shopping with them and they were well-known people. And they viewed this time in the institution as a way of educating their children mm-hmm. and of normalizing them. That was absolutely the purpose. And it fit with a whole Victorian idea um, about the possibilities for um, educating the mentally disabled and enabling them to, um, you know, to higher math and not just to have kind of technical skills. Mm-hmm. So the Victorian picture then is of a kind of optimism and progressivism. Mm-hmm. What by the 1920s and 1930s, what is happening is that parents who send their children to this institution intend for them to be hidden away. They are trying, in some cases, completely to efface their existence. So there's one boy, for instance, whose um, father drops off his christening cup and everything that the child had received when he was born. And the child was to be kept in absolute secret from everyone, as if he had died. Um, And, you know, there's this sort of full range of behavior from that, from families who, uh, you know, visit the child but never speak of them, um, to families who, you know, essentially, like like the family with the christening cup, um, either tell everyone that the child is dead or just never refer to them and let it be presumed that the child is dead. Is it is it a um, a different challenge to work with sources that tell these kind of stories that are heart wrenching that are tragic in many cases? Yeah, that's an interest. That's a really interesting question to me um, because I think it it's pretty impossible to sit in these in the archives and not be affected by these stories. And then the question is really a writing question. Well, I guess it's twofold. One is a writing question, which is how do you render these without making them um, melodramatic and without also um, pointing fingers of blame, right? right? And so I think the tendency is to view the parents who send their children away to be institutionalized, um, you know, with judgment. But that's pretty impossible to do if you understand what are the obstacles they're up against, and to see those decisions both as consequential in terms of, um, you know, social change and society around them and their social worlds, mm-hmm. but also to write about them in a way that makes clear um, the enormous emotional wrenches and tragedies that are inside of all of those stories. Um, so that's the sort of the sort of writing picture, and then I guess the analytic picture um, is linked to that. And that is to to do something that I think 
you know, comes back to that causality question that I started with, which is to, if we have many, if families do things for many of the same kinds of reasons, so if the why tends to be pretty consistent, to render in its full complexity the what, so how each family's decision plays out, what are the kinds of ramifications? What are the specific dynamics? And I think that that's, that's the sort of analytic puzzle that goes along with the writing piece. So, I mean, I think one of the best kind of things you do in the book is uh, giving a very rich context for all of these stories, because many times we get kind of the points of view of different um, people that are involved in these stories, which, you know, I, I think... Um, makes wonderful reading material, but also analytical um, material. And, and I wonder if, you know, this brought you many times to to think about the ethics of, of writing about secrets, about other people's secrets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that, I, so I should say one thing, which is that all of the, most of the records that I used, I used on the condition that I anonymize entirely the people whose case records those were in those, that of their families. So, and that meant changing not only names, but also any identifying detail. Mm-hmm. And so in the sense of hurting people individually, because their stories that had been kept secret were out there publicly, that part of the ethics I didn't worry about. And, you know, I felt like as well, and I think that this, you know, for us as historians, this is something that people encounter constantly because so much of history is, you know, whether it's the state, state secrets or the secrets of, you know, a church or the secrets of a particular society that we're always operating with secrets and that we, I think in this sense, I probably have a quite conventional historian's answer, which is that the truth matters and being able to figure out why it is that people um, behaved as they did to understand the actions of the of actors in the past, not just as sort of puzzling dead ends of genealogy, but to kind of try to render them in their, you know, full complexity mm-hmm. that that is, you know, that's part of our job. So I didn't, I didn't so much feel that. I mean, I would feel enormously queasy, I think, about the possibility of, um, or, you know, sick, actually not queasy. I would feel really upset about the possibility of, you know, um, outing someone Mm -hmm. or um, revealing secrets. But I think so long as it all proceeds under this cloak of anonymity, that these are universal stories, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned somewhere in your book uh, kind of the practice of, of using these secret archives, like the requests of archivists of you, um, where they seated you and how you had to proceed with these materials. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so in most of the materials that I used are um, formally closed under the provisions of the Data Protection Act of 1998. And so what that required was um, getting permission from either the health authorities or the lawyers of a particular trust to actually be able to view them. And so to do that, I signed undertakings that required anonymization. I would have anonymized anyway. Um, But anyway, that required anonymization. In some cases, like in in Edinburgh, when I was looking at the marriage counseling Files. They had actually been closed with kind of tight plastic bands, and so they had to be opened separately. And part of the concern was that anyone sitting in that archive w- could look over and see the names on the case files. And so I sat at a separate table um, there and a, a couple of other places. So I think there's, you know, here the message for um, people who are trying to get access to these materials is that it really is worth trying. <laughs> Um, you know, at various points, I felt that it was going to be impossible and it, it, you know, was turned down a number of times before I finally managed to uh, get myself to the person who could actually grant access. And because the Data Protection Act, as it was written, contains an exemption for scholarly um, 
purpose for scholars to actually examine these records. And lots of times people who are administering these privacy guidelines don't understand that there is this exemption. So it's important to constantly follow up and to be a past. <laughs> That's a, a good message for, <laughs> for all of us. Um, yes. <laughs> you, we were talking a bit about archives. Could you tell us a bit more about the archives you used? Some of them were pretty unusual. Yeah. So I think throughout, you know, all of my books, what I've in a sense most enjoyed doing um, in terms of the sort of initial phase of research is the scavenger hunt part of it, mm-hmm. which is trying to identify all of the places that might have relevant archives and then to try to persuade them to allow me to use them. So for instance, in my first book, that meant going down to the basement of the Starring Garter Home for Veterans, where they had amazing records in the basement mm-hmm. um, and getting them to allow me to sit down there. And in this case, what it meant was thinking, okay, I'm going to write about a legitimacy. I want to find adoption case files. Mm-hmm. So uh, adoption case files, um, working with the records of uh, homes for um, children with and adults with mental disabilities. Um, I think the archival finds that were um, most unexpected to me were uh, – set of diaries written by um, gay men. So men who in the parlance of the time were queer um, on their way to becoming kind of formally categorized homosexuals. And I, it was clear in the really wonderful work by Matt Cook and Matt Holbrook that had been done was that, Um, men like George Ives, who Matt Cook writes about, had written enormous volumes of diaries. So the George Ives diaries are, I think, 133 volumes. They may be more than that. And similarly, um, the A.C. Benson diaries, again, enormously voluminous. And so I started to think, okay, well, these guys are going to show up in other places, these diaries. And I looked through auction catalogs and there was one particular man in, that I was really interested in, the curate Richard Blake Brown. And sure enough, some, I, I think it was 45 volumes of his diaries, though many more have shown up, were auctioned off through Bloomsbury. And so tracking those down, and that is such a great story of historical irony and, and um, serendipity, which is the Richard Blake Bound's diaries, part of them, had been purchased by a um, person, a paper collector, who was buying what he thought was a lot of marbleized paper and instead managed to <laughs> bid wrongly on these and then got them and was, oh, what are these? And he didn't throw them away, although he told me he'd been tempted to because he was thinking, what do I need with 25 volumes sitting around my house? But he put them in his storage locker like all good collectors and then was very, very kindly allowed me to read them. And those were just amazing. I mean, this is a man, he was a um, curate. He had resigned his orders um, in 1928. He then returned to the Church of England and became the chaplain of Bristol Prison. And he kept a diary you know, for most years of his life. And among the things that he recounted was the time, essentially, that he comes out to his father um, in the 20s after reading Radcliffe Hall's Well of Loneliness. But again, that's something that doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily, that kind of source doesn't necessarily find its way into an archive per se. But half of those diaries were sitting in a bookseller's um, basement and half of them were sitting in the storage locker of this collector. Was this a collector surprise when you contacted him? Yes, very shocked. (laughs) Yeah, but he um, is a really fantastic person. I mean, he has a sense of historical responsibility about the past. And so I think he was also, he's also been very pleased to see them, um, you know, used and, uh, you know, thinking himself about the proper place for them to eventually lodge. And now maybe their value is increased. Yes, yes. That's, so one hopes. <laughs> um, I want to ask you a bit about writing and the very particular style of writing that um, this this book has, which I found amazing. And it's uh, all kind of almost flirts with um, fiction. And a lot of the arguments are introduced through very personal histories of individuals, as we you mentioned as we were talking before. Um, 
how did you and why did you decide to choose this form of narrative? Mm. That's such an interesting question to answer because, you know, I didn't, I don't know that I set out with the idea of choosing a form of narrative. I think as I was doing the research, a lot of the ways in which I would write it came to me pretty powerfully in the archive amidst doing it. And so I would think, okay, that is, that's either the representative case or that's the unusual one that proves, you know, the exception that proves the rule. Um, you know, as I said before about causality, part of my, part of the analytic problem was to figure out a way to make, you know, a generalizable causal set of arguments about so why families do things, but to allow the specific family dynamics to actually play out in their complexity. And that I found, you know, working through those case histories, the only way that I could actually do that to kind of render these dynamics in their complexity was by um, working outwards from those particular stories. So I think that that, in a sense, it may have been that, you know, the analytic aim um, dictated the form um, as well as, you know, the, the fact of working, you know, in family history. And I think there the interesting kind of big historical picture is that we had, you know, the kind of macro analysis, um, Lawrence Stone, Ariès, and so forth. And then we also had the micro analysis of specific families. And so trying to figure out well, what is the mid range here? How can you actually capture the, the power dynamics um, the kinds of things that are actually happening in these families with a sort of big picture mm -hmm. um, story about social change. Um, I want to go back a bit to the first part of the book that actually um, happens both in the empire in India and some of it in, um, in, in Scotland. And um, kind of to ask you about choice to begin with empire and the secrets that travel back um, to the metropole and is part is that part of the way you kind of conceive of British history today that is um, kind of takes account of the empire and as it goes yeah I think that that's in that sense I'm you know entirely typical of um, you know British historians working at the moment which is that you know that secrets um, are both made in the empire and also the status of being able to keep them in the empire um, and in the, the passage from imperial location to home is so insecure that they, you know, they're such a fundamental part of the story. I start with them. I could equally well have a chapter, you know, about 19th century familial arrangements um, or 20th century decolonization and the sort of colonial violence. Mm -hmm. um, it could appear actually in many different points in the book. But at any rate, I use that as the starting point because it's both a place where secrets are hatched. They're known oftentimes to very small, these very small societies um, in the late 18th century and early 19th century, uh, very small English societies or European societies um, in India. And then the question is, how are they going to be kept once they are back home? And the interesting puzzle for the families of these imperial men um, in that chapter in particular is about the mixed race children whom British men bring home with them is that the families don't know who knows about their, the secret. Um, and in particular, for me, the, the exemplary case is that of Robert Bruce, who comes home in 1786 with a little girl whom he claims is the daughter of a friend of his. And only gradually does he um, tell his family, maybe three years after being in England and then in Scotland, where his family lives, um, that this is, in fact, his own daughter. But he never publicly acknowledges the fact that he's the, this girl's daughter. And yet 
in nights of drinking with his old India pals in Edinburgh, in nights of eating curry with them. He's clearly told them. So the story is out, but the family doesn't know. Officially, he refuses to accept responsibility, and they don't want him to be kind of saddled with the idea that he's the father of an illegitimate child because they're worried it's going to interfere with his marriage prospects. Um, and so this, this kind of knowing and not knowing mm -hmm. the relationship of the family to their social worlds kind of perfectly encapsulates the, the starting point for the book and many of the problems that the book is going to take up. And in that sense, yeah, I mean, the book is absolutely a book that, you know, thinks about Britain and its empire you know, as, you know, fundamentally parts of the same story um, and equally well happens in Scotland, especially as much as it does in England, less so in Wales. The Bruce family is also very interesting because it's another example of the very many ways that families could react to secrets. So their story... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. You, no, maybe you can tell uh, sure. their reaction. So Margaret Bruce, as I said before, comes back um, to Edinburgh finally with her father. Um, she, her father, Robert Bruce, tells his his mother and his two unmarried siblings, his brother John and his sister Margaret, that this is in fact his child. And John, Robert has previously corresponded with from India, asking if John Robert asked John if he would take. Um, guardianship of another child, uh, an earlier child whom Robert Bruce had while in India. And John at that point responded and said, absolutely not. How could you think of introducing such a child into Edinburgh society? No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. And Robert responds very angrily. This is part of the reason why he doesn't tell John um, that Margaret is his daughter. This, The first child dies. It's Margaret who is brought back. And John's attitudes soften very dramatically once he knows that this is in fact his niece. And that's partly led for John, not just by the kind of real life existence of this child of whom he's very fond, but also the attitudes of his sister Peggy um, and his mother. And essentially the Margaret Bruce story is, as I say in the book, this is really the fairy tale. Other families of imperial men disown children. They do everything they can to cheat and steal their inheritance, going to court, doing also pulling all sorts of terrible tricks. Mm -hmm. um, Margaret Bruce is the, is the story in which everything comes together that makes it possible for the family to actually view this child as their own progeny and really to treasure her, to try to protect her from the slights of other children who are suspicious of her parentage to ensure that she becomes their heir, even though it requires a lot of legal fiddling. And then eventually also the revelation that she's the illegitimate daughter of Robert Bruce, though the fact that she's of mixed parentage um, is something that they're desperate to ensure doesn't get out into society. And so um, Margaret Bruce, the end of the story is that Margaret Bruce ends up becoming one of Scotland's richest women. She inherits from her uncle. She inherits from, you know, all of the members of the family, including her father. Yeah, lucky girl. Um, we've taken quite a lot of your time, but before we end, I'd like to ask you if um, working on this book has actually changed your view of um, the role of family secrets. Yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting question because I think, you know, I started off probably in the same place where a lot of people start off, which is thinking about secrets as kind of malign things that you don't want to have. Um, and I think, you know, coming to understand the actual functions that secrets have held, that secrets are as much you know, there's much about tragedy, of course, as they are about scandal and salacious things, that there's much about pain as they are mm. about, um, you know, just kind of power plays by families, although they are power plays by families many times um, and by particular members of families. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, I think that I come to instances such as this with a greater sense of empathy for the 
you know, the motivations that propelled people. Um, and I think I also come, you know, I ended the book with really a very different sense of how you tell the story of social transformation, a sort of inside out story. Um, and that's also, you know, I find that, you know, that's carried over also into my teaching, um, into the kinds of accounts that I'm actually satisfied with offering students. Can you give us an example of that? Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, about, I have just reorganized uh, the modern European history survey. So, you know, what used to be called Western Civ to <laughs> around social relations. And so what I try to do now is offer the students a kind of microscopic look at a particular instance of social relations, um, you know, whether it is um, the relationship between Louis and his executioner, Sasson, or um and then use that to say, okay, so how is this born out or not in the big story mm-hmm. that we're going to tell? Mm-hmm. And if it's not, why isn't it? So, um, or how does this, you know, how does looking at, and this is taken from Celia Applegate's book on the faults, how does looking at this group of, um, you know, uh, Fuzz people sitting and celebrating their day. What does this tell us actually about the story of German unification? How do we look at this moment of the local within the national? And there, as I said, you know, really um, working off of uh, Applegate's really wonderful book. Interesting. Deborah, thank you for uh, being on the show and for sharing your work, your wonderful book. Um, I enjoyed our conversation very much. Tal, thank you so much for having me and thanks for such thought-provoking and really stimulating questions. I really appreciate it. 